According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And we spent much of last week, and I don't regret that at all, spend as so much time as necessary to make sure we're solid on the uh, association of, of Christ and what He did on our behalf as the substitutionary atonement that He took our place. And the, uh, the, the, the doctrine, which used to be uh, taught very commonly in the last 10 years or so, has really started to be abandoned. And it's unfortunate uh, because, you know, how, how unbiblical do you want to get? <laughs> The uh, substitutionary atonement is foundational to uh, why it is that we have faith in Christ, what He accomplished on our behalf. And so, uh, as it says here in verse 9, we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. It wasn't the angels on the cross. It was Jesus on the cross. And we want to be clear on that. Um, Let me back up even one more verse, and then I'm going to pray. Verse 8 says, "...and subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him." So there was a glory, there was a victory. We sang victory in Jesus just a moment ago. And all of that is accomplished by virtue of the cross, but not all of that is yet observed on this earth. The kingdom has not yet arrived. The king has not yet come to claim that throne, the throne of David in Jerusalem on this earth. And so we don't yet see the subjection. And this we've got to be clear on this. There's a whole crowd of Christians out there that think we're already in the kingdom and ruling and doing all this stuff. We're being prepared for when that is going to happen. And verse 8 here says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see, and now here's the contrast, See that in verse 9? We do see Him. So we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're to be heavenly focused. We see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. It's causative. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. And the the role of Jesus Christ in accepting our wrath is that He tasted death. He experienced death. We were the ones. The wages of sin is death, and we're the sinners, not Him. All right? But He accepted the wrath in our place that we might receive His righteousness. And that's what the plan of redemption is all about. So I don't uh, regret spending a whole hour on that. We could spend a whole month on that, spend a whole year on that, make sure we're solid on our uh, redemption. But then we move on to verse 10, and uh, there's a lot of deep doctrine here as well. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And so today we're going to learn about sufferings. And uh, if you don't have enough suffering in your life, we'll appoint some for you. No, I'm, I'm teasing. But we're going to learn about staying occupied with Christ no matter the sufferings, as we accept God's wisdom and what He puts us through, preparing us for that glorious day. All right? Now, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. So let's take a moment for silent prayer, humbling ourselves under the authority of His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. This is a grace provision, Father, that you have supplied for us, a, uh, a lampstand where the word of God goes forth, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Father, I thank you for brothers and sisters that are hungry for teaching, for its teaching and its full counsel, Father, uh, that doesn't dock or hide from any aspect of your word. So Father, uh, set aside distractions, humble us cause us to receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. 
I could use a cup of coffee if there was a deacon that wanted to provide such a thing. (laughs) All right. Uh, Hebrews uh, 2 and verse 10. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So today we need to talk about what was fitting, what was proper, what is appropriate. We introduced this a little bit last week as we were running out of time and I was going faster and faster to try to squeeze it in before the, uh, before the end of the hour. So let's get right back to it. Um, God himself observes every aspect of propriety that God himself observes this, that he doesn't put us under a standard that he himself does not also live under, that there are things that are proper and there are things that are not proper. There are things that are fitting, things that are not fitting. And what makes them not fitting? What, what is it that by definition tells God he would not do such a thing or that he could not do such a thing, all right? Because this is a, a, a doctrine that's so clearly demonstrated throughout all of scriptures that although it bothers certain people, thank you so much, appreciate it. Propriety bothers some people. Uh, there are folks that have a definition of, of sovereignty that, uh, that really struggle with this thing. They, they don't want to think that God is under any kind of obligations, even obligations to himself, which I don't see the problem with that, but I have spoken with folks that really struggle because they've got this definition of sovereignty that says God does whatever he wants to do. And I say, well, let's look at those verses because we're going to find the good pleasure of God in these things. And we're going to find that which pleases him. And so right away, we can rule out the things that don't please him. Uh, and we're not defying our, our definition of sovereignty at all. If, if those are the passages we're going to use to define sovereignty. Sovereignty doesn't mean that God can do whatever. God can't sin. Jesus can't sin. God can't lie. There's things that he can't do, but there's also things that he won't do. And uh, this comes to the sense of propriety, what is fitting, what is proper, what is appropriate. And one of the things this passage deals with, of course, is the suffering of Jesus Christ is fitting. Had he not suffered, that would have been most inappropriate in terms of what it was as equipping Jesus to be our intercessor, to be our high priest, to be able to intercede on our behalf. He knows our struggles because he experienced every last one of them, including the suffering that we go through. And so this is what's fitting and what's proper. In Matthew 3, Jesus comes to get baptized, and John the Baptist doesn't want to baptize him right away. But Jesus says, permit it at this time, for it is fitting, proper for the fulfilling of all righteousness. Um, there's also another one coming up in uh, Hebrews 7 and verse 26 that we'll have uh, when we get to chapter 7, rapture pending. Um, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. What a glory for us. Israel and their stewardship, they had a priesthood, but every high priest they ever had from Aaron on, was they were all sinners. All right. They all needed to offer sacrifices for themselves first, and then they could go and intercede on behalf of the people. But Jesus is perfect. He doesn't need to bring sacrifices for himself. And he, of course, lives forever, ever living to make intercession for the saints. Aaron and Eliezer and all the other high priests that followed, they they keep dying. And, And then here's a new high priest, and then he would die, and here's a new high priest. Many of which were not even regenerate. Okay? You didn't have to be saved to be high priest. You just had to be the son of the previous high priest. And by the time you get to the Roman era, it was not even that. You could be appointed by Herod or appointed by the Romans to be high priest, whether you had a legitimate claim or not. So in any event, when we get to chapter 7, we're going to have a great contrast between those, uh, those priests and Jesus, on the other hand. But God observes every aspect of propriety, and so it was fitting proper, appropriate for him. Now notice, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Now this is a, an aspect of creation we want to be clear on, and we touched on it slightly last hour, that Jesus is the creating agent of Trinity. And we're solid on that. There's no doubt on that. That you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and whatever role the Holy Spirit may have uh, behind the scenes, uh, we have a 
a reference to the Holy Spirit brooding over the surface of the deep and, and the Spirit of God brooding over the darkness. But prim- that was in the restoration of the earth in Genesis 1. In terms of pure creation, it seems to be that all of Scripture agrees it's from the Father through the Son, that they work together, Father and Son. The Father directed and the Son executed the plan. And it's always spoken of as through whom, through the Son, as a vehicle, as an agent, as a, a partner with the Father. And so you see that. We're going to see it in some other passages as well in John 1, in Proverbs 8, in Colossians 1. Um, last hour we were in John 1, as we saw, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Remember that? And apart from Him, nothing has come into being of all that has come into being. So anything that exists, anything that has been created, Jesus is the Creator, the agent through which the Father directed this creation to happen. So He is not only the creative agent, that's a given, but He is also the eternal purpose. He is the cause and the reason. All right? And sometimes causes are different from reasons. Uh, in, in a variety of passages and in a variety of real life experiences. You can have a cause for something that's different than the reason. All right. Sometimes they're the same. Here they're the same though. The cause is Christ, the creative agent, but also the reason, the purpose. Why did God create? Why was the Father not content with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the infinite fellowship that they had in eternity past? When all there was was God, what motivated the Father to create. What motivated the Father to bring about something that was not God? Like a universe and angels and humans, all right? And what was it that motivated the Father to exalt the Son as His focal point? Because as we see, the Father loves the Son and Jesus is the point of everything. And so these passages hopefully will be clear to us. Romans 11.36 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and Colossians 1, 16. Romans eleven thirty six. And uh, this is the end of a section, which is chapters 9, 10, and 11, that focus on God's plans for Israel and how they're currently on hold, but they will be resumed. And that uh, there's a partial hardening of Israel as the church is being called forth. But as this chapter ends in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. If you're just going to praise the awesome majesty of God, that's a a good way to do it. How deep is God? And how unsearchable, how unfathomable. And if we stopped there, we'd get depressed. (laughs) Right? Because who am I? If he's unsearchable, why should I search? If he's unfathomable, I don't stand a chance. And yet, by his grace, we search the unsearchable. We fathom the unfathomable. And we plunge to the depths. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. He searches all things, even the deep things of God. It's the Holy Spirit who teaches us, the Holy Spirit that leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so it says in verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? And it's rhetorical, but we can answer it. And we can answer it in several different ways, including, of course, God the Son has known the Father, but God the Son has also revealed the Father. And we are now in the Son being brought to the Father. Why do you think it says no one comes to the Father but by me? We have our introduction to the Father through Jesus Christ. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And if, 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 whether we're going into all the argumentation from the book of Job or anywhere else in the Old Testament, uh, God doesn't owe us anything. But God has in fact invited us to join in his counsels, to join in his wisdom. And we get to become partakers of that. For from him and through him and to him are all things. This is Jesus Christ here specifically. It's God in general, but specifically Jesus Christ as the member of Trinity that put the Father's plan into effect. We could say from the Father, through the Son, and back to the Son are all things. To Him, to the Son, be the glory forever. Amen.
All right? So let's understand that the plan of God is bigger than us. We get very focused on self. We get very focused on how we benefit. No question, since, since getting saved, I've been very delighted that I'm not going to go to hell when I die. All right? Are you glad for that too? I think every, everyone, I mean, yeah, who wouldn't be? But that's beside the point in the sense that we weren't saved for our own sake. We benefit, but we're not the purpose. The purpose is the Son. That God the Father is providing a bride for His Son. And in providing the perfect bride for His Son, He's not giving His Son a bunch of unbelievers. <laughs> All right? He's giving His Son born-again believers in this church age. And this is our privilege to be prepared as a bride suitable for His Son. So, all things are from Him, through Him, and back to Him. How about 1 Corinthians 8, 6? We had a whole series in 1 Corinthians, and all of these messages are sitting there on the website. You can find them and listen to them. But uh, we were in chapter 7 last hour. We're in chapter 8 this hour. And um, it's interesting. As he's addressing idolatry, you know, and in Corinth had a big problem with that. And uh, not just the unbelievers in Corinth, but a lot of the believers in Corinth, they got saved out of that idolatry lifestyle. And a lot of them still struggled with memories and, and experiences from their unbelieving days. And so when they would see people go into the temple and get that meat, it was bothering them because they knew what happened in that temple. And so uh, we've got to deal with idolatry. And so uh, in verse 4 it says, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and there, there is no God but one. Okay, so one way of looking at it is that idol's nothing, who cares? There's only one true God, so big deal. Was it sacrificed to Zeus? Was it sacrificed to Aphrodite? Was there a was there some kind of a fornication ritual that took place in that temple as the as the animal was slaughtered? And and uh, does that bother you? It's, uh, it's the best meat in town. And uh, it's for sale in the marketplace. In any event, some it bothered, and so they would not partake. Others, it didn't bother at all. That would be me. I'd be in that camp because I like meat. But whatever uh, the case may be, also I've got doctrine and I can be relaxed with a relaxed mental attitude about the idolatry. But he does go on to say, on the other hand, even if, and there are, so-called gods, notice, frauds, phonies, fallen angels that want to be God, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are, the fact is there are many gods and many lords. There's a whole division of Elohim, of, of angels that are called Elohim, that they have divine power. They're not uncreated, I am self-existent God, there's only one God, but they are called gods, they are called lords. That's why God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. So even if there are, yet for us, okay? So as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, as far as we're concerned, there is but one God, that's the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And so this is the dynamic. This is our introduction to the Father through Jesus Christ. And this happens. We get saved the moment we get saved. We, we are baptized in the union with Jesus Christ, and that is our uh, introduction to God the Father. So here we are. And that's the, the principle there. It goes on to say, though, not all men have this knowledge. They're not oriented to the doctrine, and they still have hang-ups. Some being accustomed to the idol until now. Notice that? Accustomed to idolatry. And that's, that's totally human. I get that. We all get that. Every last one of us, I'm gazing upon a whole room of humans here, we all have um, this, this thing about what we're accustomed to. We get accustomed to something. We get, we, we get uh, addicted. We get in a rut. We get in a, in a comfort zone. It's hard to get out of that. And so because of their uh, accustomed to the idol until now, they eat food as if it was sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And I get that. I mean, there were women in this church, I'm sure, that used to be priestesses in that Aphrodite temple. All right, that's just, that's the reality of what Corinth was like back then. They, 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 a thousand temple prostitutes, the largest Aphrodite temple in the world. And so uh, we get that. 
And so if we have a weaker brother, a weaker sister, we want to have love towards them. We want to operate in the, the law of love and, and show that kind of grace. Anyway, that's a whole other message. Uh, it gets beyond what, what we need to look at here this morning. What, what we're focused on, though, is the fact that creation is through Christ, but also for Christ. That everything is from Him, but the purpose is Christ, not us. Remember, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That was last hour. We get to build on that here uh, this hour with uh, some eschatology. Where are we headed in all eternity? It's all for Christ. The best passage, I think, is Colossians 1.16. So you can join me there in Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And Colossians 1, got a marvelous text that goes uh, wonderfully well with Genesis. Because Genesis gives us all the visible. But in Colossians, we're told there's an invisible as well. We don't see any of the invisible in Genesis 1. But in the invisible, it's right here. And uh, the glory of Christ in this. I love verse 13 that says, For He, this is the work of the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. If you're saved this morning, that's you. You're no longer in that domain of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're in Christ, you've got it. You can never lose it. If you're not in Christ, you can be morally good, but you're not going to earn your way to heaven. We want to be clear on that. Now, who is this glorious Savior? He is the image of the invisible God. So we haven't seen the invisible Father, but we've seen the Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have a whole first advent incarnation ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And there's a realm of doctrine that connects to that as well, from Proverbs 8, the birthing of the humanity of Christ, and uh, aspects there. We get to verse 16, though, it says, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Notice that. And like I said, Genesis doesn't give us any of the invisible, but here this is all we're getting is the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. We've got four different classifications of spirit realm, of the, of the angelic dimension. It goes on to say, all things have been created through Him, and then those last powerful words, and for Him. Through Him and for Him. Everything is centered on the Father's will, the Father's delight to exalt and glorify Jesus Christ. Through Him and for Him, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So we're not panicking about the direction the world seems to be going. We're not in a dither over uh, whatever. Everything's falling apart. We're not, uh, we're not all uh, worried related to uh, global warming because we've got an entire universe that's going to be consumed by fire in the Father's timetable. I don't think it's that far off, to be honest. I think we are so close to the rapture with that, in that rapture generation and uh, the unfolding of God's wrath just beyond. So in Him, all things hold together. Remember, as we saw earlier in Hebrews, He holds all things uh, together by the word of His power. He is also. Now, how do we add an also to everything? <laughs> you know, I mean, we could have ended the chapter there with verse 17. Because that's everything. All things created through him and for him. He is before all things and him all things hold together. How do you add an also to that? Well, you create something new. And the church is, in fact, something all new, something that has never existed before in the fabric of this universe. It is a spirit body that is neither Jew nor Gentile. It is a body of believers that's one with Jesus Christ. It's you and me. It's a beautiful thing. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's new. Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead. They went to that empty grave. This is new that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. This is why we talk about our own personal idolatry. That's why last hour, as we stress, to live as Christ, to die as gain. If your life is not Christ, to, to whatever extent you're diminishing Christ, you're not fulfilling the purpose for, for Zoe life. Eternal life is all about Christ. 
For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Now notice fullness. And we've got some fullness studies that we're going to have to do someday when it relates to the bride because the bride is the fullness of Jesus Christ. He is the one who fills and we are the fullness. So we'll talk about that as well. God Himself observes every aspect of propriety. Jesus is not only the creative agent, but also the eternal purpose. Again, getting back now to Hebrews 2, what does it say? It says, it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Well, if everything's designed for Him anyway, then why does He not just give, why doesn't God just roll out the red carpet and treat Him with kid gloves and just make everything all fluffy and light and and unicorns and rainbows and skittles and just everything can be sweet and good and no problems, no hardships, no sufferings. Well, see, that's not fitting, okay? We're still in a verse here that's talking about fitting, proper, appropriate. If Jesus had that kind of a gravy train life, who would he be identifying with? Okay, not me, not you, not any of us, not humanity going to the cross. He'd be a kinsman redeemer for somebody that doesn't exist. That's a human without problems, okay? So no, he went to the cross as a kinsman redeemer for... Adamic humanity with all kinds of problems, with all kinds of suffering, with all kinds of testing, affliction, fair and unfair, deserved and undeserved. So it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom all things, in bringing many sons to glory. I love that. Many sons to glory. He's not there by himself. He is the beloved son, but there's more sons now, more daughters now because of what he did. And we get to be his brethren in Christ. What a joy. Notice now, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings, all right? So why was it fitting and why was it necessary and what do the sufferings produce and what does it mean to be perfected? I thought he was already perfect, okay? And now we get to some fun stuff. Boy, I spent a year on this. How about that? Um, Perfect salvation requires both a perfect and a perfected author. And and I want you to write that down, chew on it, think about it, spend this whole week dwelling on it. He is perfect. He's always been perfect. He was perfect the day that he was born. But the, the babe in the manger couldn't go to the cross. Okay, Sinless and perfect. He was qualified as a sinless and perfect lamb the day he was born. Without sin, clearly. But perfection and perfected, we're talking about different things. And it's, it's tough for us because in English we, we use the words, they overlap. The idea, well, if something's perfect, how do you make it more perfect? And if it's more perfect, then that means it was less perfect, which means it was kind of imperfect. All right? So Jesus is intrinsically perfect as, as his character, as his, in his person, sinless, innocent, but not yet perfected until the sufferings, okay? The sufferings perfected him, just as our sufferings perfect us. We have to be perfected. God's not going to give an imperfect, an unperfected bride to his perfected son. It's going to be the head and the, and the body together, the, the Christ and his bride together in the millennium and the fullness of time that are ruling over this creation and the next. All right. Perfect salvation requires both a perfect and perfected author. And you'll see what I mean by this as we look at not only Hebrews 2.10, but also uh, it comes back again and again and again throughout the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5.9, Hebrews 7.28. So when we think about something that's perfect, it, it, it can be absolutely perfect for one application and absolutely useless for another. <laughs> right? I mean... You know, you got to, oh, I'm going to, I can't use a tool illustration. I get in trouble every time. So I got to find something else. There's a, but, but something that's perfect for one thing can be absolutely useless for something else. Okay. And, and because it's not what it's fitted for, suitable for, proper for. Okay. So you're hammering nails with a, hammering nails with a screwdriver. It's not the perfect tool for that. And if you're trying to turn screws with a hammer, it wasn't designed for that. Okay. And so, and it's a perfectly good hammer. 
But it's, it hasn't been perfected for turning screws. It's been perfected for hammering nails. Okay? And as pathetic as I am, at least I get that much with respect to what tools are for. So you get the point. You have to get the point. So Christ is perfect. And, and as far as what qualifies Him to, to be a, a spotless, a lamb without spot or blemish, yeah, that's a given from day one. But not perfected because remember, he's not only is he the sacrifice, he's also the high priest. He's also the one that's bringing the sacrifice. He's the one that's accepting the wrath. He's the one that's doing that work. He's the priest, he's the altar, the altar of his soul, and he's the sacrifice. He's all three. <laughs> that's why, you know, when we have shadows and animal sacrifices and, and, and illustrations, you know, we, we end up with different things. We have a priest, we have a sheep, and we have an altar, and those are th- different things. But, but Jesus fulfills everything. Okay? We have a scapegoat, we have a sacrificial goat, and we have to use two goats for that because we can't kill one goat and then also walk it away into the wilderness. So we have to use two goats, one that we kill and one that lives that walks away. But they both picture Jesus. He died, and then He rose again, and He walked away, and He He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So we use multiple animals. We use multiple things. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that even though He's perfect, He still must be perfected. He still must be perfected. And part of the perfecting process is what He learned, is what He experienced, is what He endured. And He had to endure it experientially. It's not sufficient to just know it through omniscience. The fact that God knows everything means He has a gnosis of everything, but He Himself did not experience the sufferings. He Himself did not experience sin until Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. Are we clear? And so this this then allows Him to be experientially a partaker of what we're partakers in. And you'll see what I mean here. So um, it was fitting to perfect him. And if we object, then we don't know why it was fitting. And we need to figure out why it was fitting so we can stop objecting. Because the father, trust me, the father didn't do this for no reason. He did this because it needed to be done. Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me. And he answered his own question. It's not possible. The son had to suffer it and the father had to inflict it. God had to pour forth His wrath on His beloved Son. Why? You know, it was fitting to perfect the author of their salvation, both the author and finisher of our faith. Here it's the authorship. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 9 talks about this. Uh, Verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. What does that mean? Was Jesus some kind of a sissy? Why was he crying all the time? Was he, what what is, no, he's, he's, you know, a hero beyond belief. But crying with supplications and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. This is what he learned, and he experientially learned obedience from the things which he suffered. You know, there are things you can learn academically, and there's things you learn by experience. And he learned through the experience of suffering. And having been made perfect, see, he's already perfect, but he's perfected. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And so it comes back to how we identify with Him, how we accept His work on our behalf, and how He identified with us on the cross, and how we identify with Him in our salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, is your head spinning yet? This is not easy stuff. Uh, you, can, you can approach it on an easy basis, but then you start plugging in something like Melchizedek and... You just went off the rails. <laughs> 5.11 says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. If he, uh, not Ephesians, Hebrews is not uh, for the carnal, it's not for the, the uh, dull of hearing, it's not for a casual, uh, it, it, it takes study. This, this is a book that demands 
our attention. Chapter 7 and verse 28. And again, it's fitting. It's fitting. We can back up a little bit. Verse um, 23 talks about how uh, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. (laughs) Yeah, that's a problem. Okay. I mean, maybe he was the greatest high priest they ever had, but he's dead now, so what's he doing for me? Okay, how is he ministering for me? David Home is going to come up again next year, and he's not taking part. Okay, oh, so we got another one. Great, we'll use him. And then we'll use another one, and we'll use another one, and we'll use another one. And there's no shortage of priests, and all prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. It's a great uh, concept behind eternal security in in, uh, ways when you understand that. Therefore, he is able to save forever. The old King James there has saved to the uttermost, which I love, and it shows up in a lot of our hymns. Uh, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting, there's that word again, proper, appropriate, for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Here we go again, Day of Atonement. Here we go again. I'm a sinner. Here we go again. And so a sacrifice for himself, a sacrifice for the people. And year after year after year, we just had it. We just went through the Jewish season of, of, uh, of New Year. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And every year is another reminder of sin. But Jesus, once and for all, one sacrifice for all time, uh, he, he did this once and for all when He offered up Himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the, of the oath which came after the law appoints a son, notice now, made perfect forever. Made perfect forever. And so through the sufferings, ultimately through the cross, we have a high priest now that is perfected, seated at His Father's right hand. What angel was ever invited to take His seat at the Father's right hand? None of them. None of them were victorious on the cross as our Savior was. So, and if, if, you, if you grab that, then you've got chapters 1 through 7 down and you're ready to move on to chapter 8. Because <laughs> that's how chapter 8 starts. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. <laughs> okay? You ever listen to a pastor and you, an hour later you're thinking, what's he talking about? Okay? Don't answer that. This is Pastor Appreciation Sunday. And... <laughs> So the author of Hebrews does everybody a favor and says, in case you missed the point, I'm seven chapters into my book now. The main point of what has been said is this. We've got a high priest. We've got an amazing high priest. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Isn't that great? That is powerful. So stay tuned. We've got some good stuff coming up. Perfect salvation requires both a per- perfect and perfected author. A couple things here. Innocence did not perfect Adam, nor could it perfect Jesus. Innocence did not perfect Adam, nor could it perfect Jesus. You know, if you ever examine the what ifs, Eve ate the fruit, she turned, she gave it to her husband also. What if he didn't eat? What if he took that fruit and threw it at the serpent. <laughs> you know, what if, what if, could Adam have been her redeemer, the kinsman redeemer? Could Adam have interceded on behalf of his wife? Remember, her eyes weren't open yet until he sinned. And so she's connected to him. She's his rib. And, and what might Adam have done? Well, what did the second Adam do? Okay. The sinless, perfect kinsman redeemer. Now, Adam was sinless and perfect, but he would have required a perfecting to become a high priest, to become a redeemer, to become a justifier. We're going to talk about both he who justifies and the ones who are justified are brethren. That's the, the complete impact here of chapter 2. That the justified or kinsmen with the justifier. 
And if, we're, if he's not a kinsman, he's not a justifier. So, or sanctifier. Innocence did not perfect Adam, nor could it perfect Jesus. And in Isaiah 53, the key verse in this is verse 11 that speaks about his qualifications to be the priest on the cross. The qualifications he has beyond his sinless perfection, the qualifications he has to be our advocate, to accept God's wrath, to pour out his soul, to do the priestly work that he did on the cross. And, uh, and we discussed this. This whole Isaiah 53 is about the sinless lamb and uh, he's the sheep that did not open his mouth. And, and it's, it's a beautiful chapter. It's substitutionary atonement. The stroke was due to us, but he took it. And um, Isaiah 53.10 says, The Lord was pleased to crush him. God the Father was pleased to assign this suffering to Jesus Christ. It was pleasing, and Hebrew says it was fitting. This is what's going to bring many sons to glory. He was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Notice, though, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The Father will only impose that wrath if the Son volitionally accepts it. It, it, Not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. Jesus has to volitionally accept the wrath or the Father won't pour it out. Goes on, if he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, or he will see offspring, bringing many sons to glory. He will prolong his days. In other words, if he dies now, he's living forever. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is what he's looking forward to. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despised the shame, and was seated at the right hand of God. Now, that's verse 10. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53 says, as a result of the anguish of his soul. So verse 10, the the father crushed him, putting him to grief. What's the result? Was it for no reason? What did it accomplish? It was for every reason. It was absolutely necessary. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. This is the basis for propitiation. We know that Jesus is the propitiation, but this passage tells us why. The basis for the propitiation. The basis for the satisfaction. The Father is satisfied that the Son has been perfected and that the Son is volitionally on board with every sin He accepts. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Until He has that knowledge, He can't be the justifier. Okay? And so, just write these things down, chew on them, think about them. Because when we think about being justified, we're happy to be saved, we're happy to be justified, and we know that without the cross, we can't be justified. We get that. But there's a step behind that. There's a step that leads up to that. Without this knowledge, without this crushing, without this grief, without this suffering, then Jesus himself is not qualified to satisfy the Father. He can't be the justifier without it. So by his knowledge, the righteous one, yes, he's righteous, righteous, sinless, perfect, the Lamb of God, but without that knowledge, he's not yet perfected to be the justifier. By his knowledge, my right, uh, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. That's why, as we develop this in the Life of Christ series, the, the crushing took place in, in Gethsemane. That's what qualified him. That's where he obtained that knowledge. That's where the full awareness of human sin was was revealed to him. And he accepted it. He accepted it. So the father was satisfied. Put him on a cross the next day. All right. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. It didn't happen in the Garden of Eden. It didn't happen in innocence. 
The Lord God came. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He didn't come to redeem them. The Garden of Eden would not have suited, would not have fitted Jesus to go to a cross in the Garden of Eden. Innocence did not perfect Adam, nor could it perfect Jesus. The perfected author, we're going to see a lot of perfection studies coming up. He was perfected through suffering, and so are we. Because the perfected author perfects a perfected people. And that's us. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. The author and finisher of our faith. And if we're very happy to have him as the author of our faith, right? Who's not happy to have Jesus as the author of our faith? We're glad that he saved us. We should also be just as glad that he continues to perfect us. And that perfecting is Jesus Christ being faithful to bring us to that perfected place. Okay? He who began a good work in you will perfect it, complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we are a perfected people. And, uh, and so it's a theme that we're going to have again and again in uh, the book of uh, Hebrews. Uh, it's also going to come up in Philippians. So kind of fun that we're doing Philippians first hour and Hebrews second hour. Um, Philippians 3.12 not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And what did Paul have to look forward to in his being perfected? Persecution, martyrdom, having his head chopped off, thrown to the lions. On at least one occasion, he was thrown to the lions. And he wrote about it afterwards, so that's not the thing that killed him. Okay, But... Um, being perfected. And thank God for it. God's not just taking babies to heaven and populating a heavenly nursery. <laughs> you think about that. Jesus didn't tell the disciples, you know, behold, in my father's nursery are many playpens. <laughs> no. A dwelling place. I go to prepare a mansion. It's like we sang in Victory in Jesus. All right. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. You think it's a big deal? It keeps coming back again and again and again and again how Christ does this and Mosaic law never could. So Hebrews uh, 7.19. We were just looking at chapter 7 earlier. I didn't back up enough. Um, And beyond verse 19, how about verse 11? If uh, perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, then God could have just stuck with that, right? Why switch? If, it's, if, it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, okay? If, if, if Levitical priesthood could do the job, then run with that. Keep your son in glory and don't put him on a cross. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the people, for on the basis of it, the people received the law... What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Clearly something's happening here because he wasn't even a priest. He was from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And and in his first advent, he was not an earthly priest. He was not a Levitical priest. But he went to the cross as a Melchizedek priest and, and accomplished the work that he accomplished there. All right. So clearly something different is happening here. There's a new priesthood in town, so there's a new way to operate. When the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. That's why it's insane when a church-age believer wants to be an Old Testament legalist. You're mixing and matching our new priesthood with that old priesthood that's obsolete and ready to disappear. So uh, it's evident, verse 14, it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And it's clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. And so we have these prophecies. Psalm 110, right? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, and then you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Don't separate those out. And so um, I love verse 16. Who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. 
If you wanted to be a Levitical priest, too bad, you're not a Levite. Your, your, father, your father's not a priest. You don't qualify. It's a requirement of physical birth. But you want to be a Melchizedek priest? Good news. It's on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And we've got that. We've got that because we're in Christ. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession, and this is us. We have that indestructible life, that Zoe life in Christ. So, uh, and then you get down to verse 18. On the one hand, there is the setting of former, setting aside of the former commandment because it was weak and useless, the impotent Mosaic law, for the law made nothing perfect. <laughs> just read it sometime. Do this and you die. 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 Okay? Read through Mosaic law. Do you find any kind of hope? Is there any kind of good news? You made it? Uh, Any kind of thing? Hey, wow, you know, aren't you amazing? Every aspect of law is all about if you do this, you're a violator. And uh, Jesus is the only one that ever could fulfill the entire law. So the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And this is what we have the high priest of our confession. This is our confession, is that better hope. So, Jesus, the guarantee of a better covenant. We are being perfected. The law perfected nobody, but grace in Christ perfects everybody. Everyone in Christ, that is. All right. Uh, 9.9, Hebrews 9.9. It is kind of curious. Um... This is a description of the outer tabernacle, the outer court, the inner court, the holy place, the holy of holies. It says in verse 6, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So that's how it used to be. One guy, one day a year. Much better today. (laughs) all of us, all day, every day, in Christ. The Holy Spirit signifying that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. That's why we believe uh, Hebrews was written before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. You know, on uh, Saturday, April 4th, 33 AD, they went in and they had to, that veil, they had to sew it back up. They broke the Sabbath to go in on Passover weekend to go in, sew that veil back together again so they could resume their temple operations. <laughs> Isn't that something? And so here they go, offering sacrifices, continuing on their Levitical priesthood, doing this and that even after they crucified the Christ, even after the, uh, the once and for all sacrifice was done. Anyway, gifts and sacrifices which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. The law made nothing perfect. So yeah, you have a day of atonement. Great, you're going to do it again next year. 10.1, the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. But you and I are in grace, not under law, and we are being perfected. Chapter 11 and verse 40. talking about the Hall of Fame of Faith and all those Old Testament heroes, they walked by faith. All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't die and go to heaven. They died and went to Abraham's bosom. Their sins were covered. Their sins were atoned for, but not removed. And they, uh, they waited in Abraham's bosom until the Redeemer arrived and pronounced the victory. And then he led captivity, captivity captive and brought them to heaven. The paradise is in heaven today. It used to be in Sheol. 
So they died in faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. This is the role that the bride has, by the way, when we sit in judgment and we get to sit on thrones and, and Old Testament saints get resurrected and we in Christ get to pronounce their rewards. Finally, uh, chapter 12, verse 2 and verse 23. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Notice the author, what else? And perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we're supposed to do. We're imitators of that. We should have the joy set before us. We should endure our cross. We should despise our shame. Whatever the Father calls us to do. Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what we're commanded to do. Finally, down to verse 23. So here's a picture for you. And I don't understand every detail. I'll be honest, I'm I'm hoping, I definitely have to know this better by the time we get to chapter 12, rapture pending, okay? But here is a, here's a view, here's a glimpse of heaven. And this is where we are positionally. We didn't go to Mount Sinai. We didn't go to a mountain of fear. We didn't go to a whirlwind and fire and gloom and, and all of that. That was terrible. Moses said, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come, and here's, here's our description. Now this is a, a, a poetic picture. This is where we are, positionally. Okay, Your bodies are on Cross Park Drive, sitting in an auditorium. But, but spiritually, where are you? You're saved. So where are you? You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. We're there now. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place. We're there now. It has not yet descended out of heaven. It's not yet appeared on the earth, but we're there now. And uh, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. We're there now. They're going to be our servants for all eternity. To the general assembly. Now that's what I want to work on because uh, in connection with the angels that were just mentioned, there is a... um, concept here of general assembly and there's a general assembly that applies not only in the angelic realm but to gentiles and jews and i'm not ready to develop that yet comprehensively so um stay tuned i'm still working on general assembly but then church of the firstborn here we go who are enrolled in heaven jesus said on this rock i will build my church it was a new creation not yet in existence but here we are and we're enrolled in heaven We don't have an earthly inheritance. We don't have a land grant. We're not a part of the Gentiles or the Jews or any other earthly plot. We we are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Again, we've got Old Testament Gentiles, Old Testament Jews, and other aspects we've got to talk about in a more comprehensive way. Oh, and by the way, to Jesus. Now, why is he mentioned last? You can do that for different reasons. I think it's emphatic. I think it's reserved to the very end so that he has the spotlight. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So there we are. All right. And we are being perfected. There's the spirits of the righteous made perfect in verse 23. So perfect salvation requires both a perfect and perfected author. It's vital that we understand that He is both, that we are the sanctified, He is the sanctifier, but we're from the same Father. Okay, so next week is what we're going to look at. At verse 11, Hebrews 2, 11. Both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father, for which reason He's not ashamed to call them brethren. And then he's going to quote Psalm 22. He's going to quote, you see, it wasn't just my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think he recited all of Psalm 22 from top to bottom. There is powerful doctrine in that psalm. 
including, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So uh, bringing many sons to glory. He who sanctifies and the... um, we who are sanctified, and he who sanctifies. Think about that in the coming week. What qualifies him to be the sanctifier? What qualifies him to be the justifier? What is it that perfected him so that he as our kinsman can do this? Okay? And I've already answered it, but we'll, we'll touch on it again as we, uh, as we go through these things. All right. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you, Father, for the blessings that we have in Christ. I thank you for uh, for what he accomplished, how humble he was, Father, to submit to uh, the suffering, to the undeserved suffering, to the affliction, to the uh, uh, the work that he accomplished on the cross, Father, bearing our sins, accepting your wrath, paying that penalty, Father, that we might have eternal life. Father, I pray that we would understand this, that we would lay hold of this, that we would be eager to teach it. Father, we sang a hymn that says, I love to tell the story, and I think sometimes we sing it hypocritically as we sing it, but maybe we're not as eager as we should be to, to, to reach out to the lost and, and give them that hope that is within us. So Father, be at work, motivate us, humble us, that we might uh, tell that story. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.